Well, good afternoon and welcome to Your DIY Health here on the Eurofolk Radio Network. I'm your host, Sergeant Jim Ram, retired. You can call me Sarge. It's Thursday, August 4th, 2022. Had a little bit of a snafu getting connected this time. I don't know what's going on. Been running like a head with my chicken cut off since early this morning. But anyway, we're here and we're ready to roll. And we've got uh, our guest on the line. Just want to say check out the website, yourdiyhealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R-D-I-Y, like do it yourself. Health, H-E-A-L-T-H, yourdiyhealth.com. Uh, have fun looking around. All the stuff's there. Our te- the iTeraCare device at the top of the homepage. And uh, radio shows tab has uh, archives, has information about the shows we do when they're on and how you listen. And the Facebook and Telegram channels. All that good stuff. If you have any questions about anything, I finally have my phone working again. Thank goodness. <laughs> it didn't happen at 2 o'clock like it was supposed to. It took uh, about an hour's worth of phone calls. And by 4 o'clock, I think I had it up and running. But my voicemail works. I can text in and out, and everything is working the way it should again, finally. Sorry, Jim. Is that the Spectrum phone, or is that the Volta phone? That's the Spectrum. It's back on Spectrum now. Okay, Um, gotcha. Yeah. (laughs) Jim? Yes, sir. My my fiduciary contribution to today's show has to be one keyboard, because when you came out with, I'm running around like a head with its chicken cut off, I actually sprayed my keyboard. I am so sorry. Don't drink coffee during this show. God. I am so sorry about that. (laughs) Didn't mean to have uh, that kind of an effect on you, but uh, I can understand. Yes, you did. Oh, goodness. Well, let's, uh, now that we've had our fun, let's get to things because we're going to be talking about the Committee of Style today with Mike Gaddy. Mike, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing uh, pretty well for an old man, uh, Jim. Hope you're doing well. Can't complain. Everything's great. Plugging along. Uh, well, that is a definite positive. As a, Just to let you know, uh, I keep in touch with our old friend, Brad, mm-hmm. and uh I was texting with him this morning. I'm uh, trying to shake him out of his, uh, Funk. Uh, of his, uh, <laughs> what, whatever we could call it. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, just, uh, was, uh, talking with him and, uh, telling him how much he's missed and that, uh, he's always welcome yep. to come back. Definitely. And, uh, he said, uh, he sent the last text he sent me was the question should never have been how can we fix this government the question should have been why do we need the damn thing in the first place <laughs> amen brother he's on the right track <laughs> he's i told him I, I said well you know uh i'm proud of you i said amen brother you see it clearly now mm-hmm. so um uh, that uh but this is part of it jim and you know it's amazing to me when i look at it at how much of our history has been denied us as to what actually happened in so many instances. And, you know, you have to stop and think and ask yourself one crucial question. Why would someone tell you a lie? (laughs) And that is always to hide something, right? Because isn't a lie the theft of truth? Yep, pretty much. Well, I think today, and I wanted to discuss this, I haven't discussed this on on many forums, uh, even over the years that I've known about it, but I I wanted to bring this up, was that, 
you know, we had four months in the summer of 1787. The guy who stood up and spoke more times than anyone else, 171 times he stood up to make proposals. And uh, he made motions on multiple occasions. Uh, many of them were uh, voted down, many of his proposals. But yet, being the largest speaker, and you know, you have to give credit where credit is due, Jim. This guy was brilliant. He, he was absolutely brilliant. Of course, he was a lawyer, but quite brilliant. But he was also a, you know, he couldn't be trusted. He couldn't be trusted in so many respects. He walked for a limp most of his adult life. Uh, which made people think that he probably got that during the uh, Revolutionary War. But actually, he got that from jumping out of a second-story window <laughs> of a you know, when a husband came home too soon. Yeah. So this guy was, but again, the brilliance is what is scary with him. And I, I'm speaking of someone that we very seldom ever know anything about, and that is Gouverneur Morris. Mm -hmm. And uh, Morris did quite a few, you know, he tried to get the uh, Revolutionary Army to get all of the generals to revolt and take over the U.S. Congress. And so this is a gentleman without scruples, but again, I, not to overemphasize, was his brilliance. But in three days in September of 1787, he rewrote the Constitution, the Constitution that had been given to him by the Committee of the Whole, as flawed as it was in many respects, he rewrote as being the person selected to be the chief guy on the Committee of Style and Arrangement. Now, I'm trying to sort through some of my documents here to get a uh, to get a better look of it, look at it uh, to give it to the people. But at the end of the convention, the delegates appointed the committee of style and arrangement to bring together the textual provisions that the convention had previously agreed to, and to prepare a final constitution. Now, Pennsylvania delegate Gouverneur Morris, who ironically was from New York drafted the document for the committee and with few revisions and very, very little debate because most of them were exhausted. They'd been there for four months. They just wanted to go home. The convention adopted Morris's draft of the Constitution. For more than 200 years, questions have been raised as to whether Morris covertly altered the text in order to advance his own constitutional vision. Well, I don't think there's any doubt about that, Jim, when we when we're going to get into that to some extent. If a close examination will show that Morris made at least 15 significant changes to the Constitution. And that many of the Constitution's central elements were wholly on the part of Morris. Morris's changes strengthened the national executive and the judiciary. 
provided the textual basis for what we call judicial review, which uh, was never included in the Constitution, but which has destroyed it in so many different ways. But he created the most galling part is he created the basis for the Federalist position on the Constitution as opposed to the Anti-Federalist. Now, the Federalists, notably including his friend, very close friend, the man who gave the uh, – Gouverneur Morris gave the eulogy at the funeral for Alexander Hamilton. Now, Hamilton repeatedly drew on the language inserted into the Constitution by Morris as he fought for his vision of the Constitution. So he used those words and phrases on so many instances, especially in his appeal for the first U.S. bank. Now, ironically, here we go into another thing that most people don't know. Most people don't even know who were the members of the Committee of Style and Arrangements. And, of course, there was Gouverneur Morris was there. James Madison was there. Everyone who was there was a Federalist. Because there were no Federalists, anti-Federalists left except for George Mason and Elbridge Gerry. The rest of them had left in disgust. So one of the things I think that is critical, and most people probably, Jim, have never even given this any truthful consideration. But the thing he did change almost totally was the preamble to the Constitution. And comparison of the document Morris and the committee produced with the text previously approved by the convention reveals a series of crucial changes, including changes to some of the most prominent parts of the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, the opening words of the preamble and undoubtedly the most famous phrase in the history of the Constitution was entirely Governor Morris's creation, as were the preamble's dictates. In other words, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty. Well, that I'll get into just a little bit later, but the Committee of Style and Arrangement reinserted into the Constitution things which had been voted down by the Committee of the Whole previously. One of them was the contract clause of the Constitution. Now, we could do two days, Jim, on how that has affected American jurisprudence, but it had been rejected on the floor during a vote. But he provided, by reinserting it, a textual basis for it to reach public contracts. It created the familiar structure of the Constitution, Article 1, Article 2, and Article 3. It differentiated the Article 1 vesting clause from that of Article 2, and it revised the vesting clauses of Article 2 and Article 3. It altered, in important ways, the language of the law of the land provision, the engagement clauses, 
the qualification clause, the impeachment clause, the census clause, and the presidential secession clause, and the new states clause. Now, to his credit, Gouverneur Marsh removed the word justly from the fugitive slave clause. Got to give credit where credit's due. But here is the point, is that people will say, okay, uh, you know, what difference does all of this make, you know, because it's in the Articles of Confederation. I mean, I'm sorry, it's in the preamble, and it's not in the uh, Constitution itself. And, the con- you know, the preamble is, uh, you know, a declaration of intent, which all 50 states have said. Any preamble is a declaration of intent. But the problem is, is that the preamble was used by the first Congress and members of the of Washington staff in creating a Federalist view of the Constitution, which was not in the Constitution prior to that point. Uh, and one of the things I think, uh, and here is uh, an admission in a quote that I have by Morris himself. He says that the instrument was written by the fingers which write this letter. Having rejected redundant and equivocal terms, I believed it to be as clear as our language would permit, accepting, nevertheless, a part of what relates to the judiciary. On that subject, conflicting opinions had been maintained with so much professional astuteness that it became necessary for me to select phrases which expressing my own notions would not alarm others nor shock their self-love. And to the best of my recollection, this was the only part which passed without discussion. Well, here he admits that he, in effect, wrote the Constitution and changed it to meet his own criteria. But, of course, the Federalist who controlled the first Congress, folks, was not about to challenge what he had put in there because he had put back the things that they wanted. And there may have been a conspiracy here. We know how everybody hates that. But there may have been a conspiracy among those in the Committee of Style and Arrangement to take it back to what they initially wanted. And I bring that up because there was a person who was not selected for the Committee of Style and Arrangement who made significant contributions to Gouverneur Morris. And that would be none other than the wonderful James Wilson, the Caledonian, also from Pennsylvania, also a lawyer, one of the first, one of the first people chosen by Washington to be on the Supreme Court. So we look at that and we go, okay, you know, what actually did he change? Well, uh, I'm trying to find Jim. I'm looking through my notes here. I thought I had everything in order, but we know how that goes. We, uh, you know, we have a a head with his chicken cut off here. Uh, So I'm looking at exactly what he did. 
especially with how the changes were, and I wanted to illustrate this to the people, how the changes that he instituted in the preamble changed the direction of the Constitution itself. And that, I think, is most critical because the Federalists used it in the beginning to make all of their positions and to reinforce their positions. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, I will be able to scroll to it in here in just a second, Jim. But the, <coughs> pardon me, the one question I would like to throw out, I want you to think about this before we get to the commentary period, and I want the people who are listening to think about this. Here's a question I'm going to throw out to you from the very beginning, and that is, again, contemplate this as we move forward. And my question is this. Is taxation slavery? Is unlimited taxation from any source for any reason and any amount, is that in fact slavery? So that will give you uh, a little bit of time to consider that. So let's examine the provisions of the Constitution now whose substantive meaning was changed by the Committee of Style. Now, all of these changes follow a uniform pattern. With each substantive change, Marsh reversed a loss that he himself had suffered during the convention proceedings where he advanced a position not reflected in prior drafts of the Constitution. Marsh's changes expressed his vision of the Constitution and provided textual support for the position that the Federalists would champion in the early republic, as I mentioned before, especially in the first, uh, in the first uh, Congress. So, you know, and again, as I mentioned, was the preamble. Okay, here is how the preamble was issued to the Committee of Style and Arrangement. And then we're going to discuss the changes. Here is the original preamble. We, the people of the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Providence Plantations, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, do ordain, declare, and establish the following constitution for the government of ourselves and our posterity. End of the preamble, which was changed by Gouverneur Morris alone to this. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Now, how many people knew about the change? How many people knew he changed it completely from what it was? The Committee of Styles changes, Governor Marsh's changes to the preamble, reframed the Constitution entirely by converting it from a document establishing a confederation 
without any overreaching purpose to one creating a national government animated by powerful goals. This new, entirely new statement of the nation and its purposes, which reflected Morris's own views about the government, had significant legal consequences during the debates of this early government. Today's legal scholars and courts generally conclude that the preamble is not a grant of power and that it has little or no legal value or judicial usefulness, or it is at most a gloss on powers otherwise granted in the Constitution. However, founding-era Federalists repeatedly relied on the preamble as a grant of power over the objections of their anti-Federalist opponents. The court's failure to recognize the Federalist approach to interpreting the preamble, an approach that was guided by Morris's changes to the preamble's text, has consequences, especially during the First Congress, of the greatest significance. Strikingly, and very unusually, but I think it's very telling, is the records of the convention, both from James Madison and others, do not report any discussion whatsoever about the Committee of Styles' totally revised preamble. But, upon its completion and submission to the state, the Anti-Federalists bitterly attacked the phrase, we the people, in the state ratifying conventions. Since the debates in Philadelphia were secret, those who did not participate could not know about the enumeration of states in the Committee of Styles preamble, but they were aware of the opening provision of the Articles of Confederation, which declared the document to be the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union between the states of, and then it lists all the states. And the Constitution's formulation of a new preamble was dramatically different now who would attack this most Patrick Henry when he said what right had they to say we the people my political curiosity exclusive of my anxious solicitude for the public welfare leads me to ask who authorized them to speak the language of we the people instead of we the states and that's a hell of a statement, guys, because the people were sent there by their states with specific instructions, which they ignored. So Patrick Henry's comment was most prescient, but it was pretty well, pretty much ignored, too. Now, modern day historians who are usually Marxists have repeatedly argued that we ought not attach too much significance to this change in the preamble. Well, on August the 31st, shortly before the Committee of Style began its work, the convention decided that the new government would come into being if nine states ratified the Constitution. So, you know, we know that they were obviating away from the Articles of Confederation. Now, Morris's statements at the convention reflect his beliefs that the Constitution should create a government for a unified nation rather than for a confederation of states, which everybody thinks the Constitution is, 
but the preamble destroys that. And as Gouverneur Marsh, I think this is critical because he said at the Constitution that he was not a representative of Pennsylvania, but that he was a representative of America as a whole. Now, let's correlate that with a speech he made in 1802 when he was a member of the Senate from New York. And he said, Never in the flow of time was there a moment so propitious as that in which the convention assembled. The states had been convinced by melancholy experience how inadequate they were to the management of our national concerns. The passions of the people were lulled to sleep. State pride slumbered. The Constitution was promulgated and then it awoke and opposition was formed, but it was in vain. The people of America bound the states with this compact. Well, as the last sentence obviously suggests, Morris believed that the states should have no power whatsoever. And the opening words of the preamble he created reflected that very thought. Because the sovereign creators of the Constitution were the people as an aggregate, and it left the states out completely. The Constitution was the creation not of people of the various states acting in concert, but the people of America. Morris's preamble not only changed who the authors of the Constitution were, but also announced their goals. And their goals were to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Now, that listing was quite novel. The Committee of Details preamble, by contrast, had not offered any statement of goals. There were no goals listed in the original preamble. Gouverneur Morris added those. The final three goals of Morris's preamble, providing for the common defense, promoting the general welfare, and securing the blessings of liberty, were all listed in James Madison's Virginia plan. Is that a coincidence or not? But the second three goals, to form a more perfect union, to establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility, were not included in any of the documents in American history. The New, York, the New Jersey plan spoke of a union, but the focus is dramatically different. The New Jersey plan sought to maintain the current arrangement, the preservation of the union of the states. Morris's goal and his accomplishment with the preamble was literally a reformulation stipulated as to form a more perfect union. <clears throat> Pardon me. So uh, I'm trying to find something here now that was said by uh, the first attorney general to the United States, Edmund Pendleton, which if you read it and read it very slowly is quite shocking as to what the first 
attorney general would say. Again, guys, pardon me for a second while I try to find that amongst my copious notes uh, for today's class. I had 57 pages of notes, so uh, pardon me for just a second as I try to put this together. Uh, go ahead, Jim. Did yeah, you have a comment? While you're doing that, I was just going to say there have been several people who did agree so far <laughs> that uh, taxation, and especially uh, unlimited taxation, is in fact <laughs> slavery. And several other terms were used, including extortion, and if you forget the others. But anyway, um, yeah. And probably some we shouldn't, probably mm -hmm. some we should mention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that is, uh, Jim, and uh, I've almost got complete. I've got just a few minutes left to go with the program tomorrow on uh, Whistling Dixie. But that, uh, the reason I asked that question is to put that forward as a, uh, the exactly the point of that and I, I'm giving away part of tomorrow's program, but, uh, you know, a lot of people that I know who are Southerners will tell you over and over and over again that the war of the civil, the civil war, the war of northern aggression, war between the states, our second war for independence, whatever you want to call it, that that was not about slavery. Well, I'm sorry, and I know I make a lot of people angry with this, but it was about slavery. Everybody. <laughs> It was about fiscal, F-I-S-C-A-L, slavery and not physical slavery. Right. And so that, I believe, people can understand in today's world is that the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, accompanied with the Necessary and Proper Clause, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18, and Article 6, Paragraph 2, establish that there is no, uh, you know, that it was all Thunder. about slavery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was uh, one slavery of another, as uh, I uh, uh, put it on uh, the program for tomorrow, Jim. It was establishing that great federal plantation in, in which we all live. Right. So uh, that was one of the points. Let me see if I can find, again... I probably should not make so many notes for a two-hour or one-hour presentation. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's, uh, I, I can't help myself. So I uh, hope people will excuse me while I actually find this quote that I'm looking for. Um, and it should be here again. Again, I pard uh, pardon me for this, uh, what we would call a pregnant pause but uh, anyway here it is i found it oh, great. now listen to this very carefully guys and i'm going to read it very slowly so you'll understand what the first attorney general edmund randolph first attorney general appointed by george washington had to say about the preamble okay the preamble to the constitution has also been relied on as a source of power to this it will be here remarked once and for all that the preamble, if it be operative in a full constitution of itself, and the body of the constitution is useless, but that it is declarative only of the views of the convention, which they supposed would be left fulfilled by the powers delineated meaning the preamble, 
and that such is the legitimate nature of preambles. Edmund Randolph, first U.S. Attorney General. Now, Jim, I had to read that two or three times before it really sunk into this old brain. But let me read it one more time. Okay. The preamble to the Constitution has also been relied upon as a source of power. To this, it will be here remarked once and for all that the preamble, if it be operative, is a full Constitution of itself. And the body of the Constitution is useless, but that it de it's declarative only of the views of the Convention which they supposed would be left fulfilled by the powers delineated and that such is the legitimate nature of preambles. So here, in my opinion, Edmund Randolph is saying that the Constitution is an amendment to the preamble. Now, would you argue that point with me, Jim? Boy, I don't think so. <laughs> So with one, you know, with uh, in three days and I make this contention, I've told this people told this to people and they look at you like you lost your mind. And I said, in three days, Gouverneur Morris wrote the Constitution, had nothing to do with the convention that preceded it in any substantive manner. But in his rewording and reinserting 15 things that had been voted down during the committee of the whole. He is responsible, and in his own writing, he said, the Constitution is, was written by the hand that wrote you this letter. So we say we have founding fathers. We don't. We have a founding father. One lawyer from Pennsylvania and New York, a very close friend of Alexander Hamilton, whose scruples are very questionable and mentioned throughout history. Even the people who knew him said he was untrustworthy. James Madison was one of them. And it's, we're looking at something and we accept the constitution. And Jim, I know, I think it was seventh grade, maybe before that I had to memorize the preamble to the constitution. As part of my as part of my memory work in school. Yeah. But how many of us knew at the time that there was an entirely different preamble which established a completely different form of government? Probably none. How many today know that, Jim? About the same number. <laughs> well, folks, on this subject alone. I said I have 57 pages of notes Jeez. on today's presentation, but on the complete Committee of Style and Arrangement, I have 125 pages of notes. So I hope you will pardon me as I jumped around from point to point. But, Jim, my point has been made is that in the early first Congress, the preamble was referred to in the first Congress, which was almost completely under Federalist control, 49 to 11 in the House, 20 to 2 in the Senate. 
and they used the wording that Gouverneur Morris had put in the preamble to authorize their future, their their plans, the things that they were doing, including the first U.S. bank, which is today the Federal Reserve, which is totally unconstitutional. But Edmund Randolph basically said that from the very beginning, that the preamble was the Constitution. The Constitution was the addendum to the preamble. And the preamble, with all of those phrases, think how many times that the Supreme Court has said, for the general welfare. Many other clauses. And Patrick Henry said that the necessary and proper and the general welfare clause will be the windows through which all manners of evil shall pass. Now, I know I've got lots of Southern friends and lots of others who will tell you unequivocally that this Constitution was a gift from God and it was perfect until Abraham Lincoln came along. I don't know why they cling to that. They have to cling to the fact that the Constitution somehow was fabulous. It was just Abraham Lincoln that screwed it up. But that's the same philosophy we have today, Jim. We have exactly the same philosophy among the American public. The Constitution is fine if we could just find an honest politician. Yeah, and they don't even think Abraham Lincoln did anything wrong. No, he's got a monument on the Potomac. The man who purposely, as Clinton Rossiter, his socialist historian, wrote, he destroyed the Constitution in order to preserve it. Now, that'd be like saying, well, you know, gosh, uh, yesterday I shot my wife, but it means she'll be around longer. (laughs) Yep. Some of these comments that people have said are so absurd, Jim, it just, it, it's absolutely repugnant to anyone with a brain. But yet we keep falling for this stuff and we keep believing it. So we believe that, you know, uh, our founding fathers, these wonderful, the framers, these wonderful people spent four months preparing a constitution which Gouverneur Marsh totally rewrote in three days. And no one objected, and people will say, I had some pretty prominent Ph.D. people tell me, well, the people accepted it, they voted on it, and they accepted it, regardless of who wrote it, regardless of who did this, regardless of who did that. And I said, no, they didn't. The people didn't accept this. The people didn't know what happened. The people didn't know there was another preamble. The people didn't know that the preamble took it from a republic to a monarchy. They didn't know that Gouverneur Morris made 15 substantive changes throughout the Constitution, many times putting in provisions that he had proposed at the convention, which had been voted down. So, Jim, I've uh, blathered on here for about uh, 45 minutes. Uh, uh, I'm willing and ready. I've got lots and lots of notes. I could probably talk on this for two days, and no one would like that. But uh, if there's – let's – if you are willing, let's open it up for questions and comments a little early. Yeah, I would just say that um, it is remarkable, and I'm sure it's because they were worn out that 
there was nothing, and, and the Federalists obviously were kind of ruling things even at the convention, uh, given there were only two left at the end. Um, obviously, they were getting what they wanted, so they weren't going to say anything about it. And all the debate definitely took place in the states afterwards. And unfortunately, you know, it's one of those things where not enough ears were hearing the, the right message as usual. And uh, that's why we got what we got. But I agree that it wasn't the people that agreed to this by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, anybody who wants to ask a question, now's the time. Jump in and unmute and go for it. I um, find it interesting that people who claim the Constitution and swear it's uh, just, like Mike said, a gift from God. All we need to do is find someone honest. All the problems that we currently have, whether it be nonstop taxation, nonstop war, uh, nonstop federal intrusion on the states, et cetera, et cetera, all of those arguably can be traced back to the very piece of paper that these people just cling to. Well, I think uh, I had a program uh, called Addicted to Our Own Destruction that pretty well covers that, Robert. Yeah, yeah. And you just laid it out, too, in the past 43 minutes. You're clinging to something that's really causing you problems. Interesting paradox. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, any other comments, folks? Thank you, Robert. Certainly. Thanks for letting me play. I just unmute and jump in. Water's fine. No alligators. <laughs> Is beer cold? Uh, don't have any. <laughs> okay. Oh, surely somebody wants to say something. Goodness. Uh, Mike, you said earlier that uh, the convention started off with over 200 amendments, which were cut, chiseled, whittled down to the 10 that we wound up with. What are some of the ones that wound up on the cutting room floor? I, I know that uh, I think Rhode Island, for one, did not want any taxes at all. But what are some of the others that, that they quickly did away with? All 13 states issued the same amendment, which was no direct taxation on the people. That was the only unanimous amendment that came from every state that submitted amendments was no direct taxation on the people, and that was one of the first ones that James Madison's committee threw in the waste bin because they knew that the Constitution had been created for the very purpose of direct taxation on the people. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1. So they were not about to allow that one. They were not about to send that one to the states for ratification, which should have been the proper way it, it was done. All of these amendments, after the duplicates were removed, every darn amendment should have been submitted to the states and let the states pick which amendments they wanted, not to have the Federalist Congress whittle it down to 14 out of over 100. So uh, that, I think, is very critical in the fact that they weren't submitted to the states for ratification, which Article 5 calls for. And again, that people can embrace this Constitution, which denied the people the right to pick their own amendments. 
the amendments that had been suggested. Like the state of Virginia, Robert, gave 40 amendment suggestions. The first 20 were designed for freedom and liberty, to protect the freedom and liberty of the people. The second 20 amendments which Virginia offered were alterations to the Constitution itself, structurally. So Virginia offered double. New York offered double. List of both. One to protect the freedom of the people. One to to alter the structure of the government to present to prevent usurpations on the people's rights. But yet, I mean, you know, we could do a class if you guys want to. We could do a, a period on going through all of the amendments that were offered by all of the states. I would be happy to do that. I have those. Maybe you if should. Someone, and, uh, you know, if people would be interested in that, I would be more than willing to put that together, and we could do it right here on this format. Cool. Now, you said the states did not want any direct taxation. So does that mean they would have been comfortable with indirect, like a sales tax? They had no problems with what they called imposts. And that was the taxation of the day that was acceptable. In other words, Thomas Jefferson wrote about this. Put imposts basically on imports. Mm. On the imports that are coming into the country, put taxes on them but what you do when you do that kind of taxation is you give the people the choice of whether they will pay that tax or not. Sure. And it would be the difference if I wanted a, uh, uh, you know, a compact car or a luxury limousine. The amount of taxation would depend on my own choice. I realize that might be a poor example, but that would give the people who were paying the taxes, the option of paying the tax for that. The other thing that Thomas Jefferson mentioned in this same letter was that if the government is allowed to tax anything they want at any rate they want for any amount they want, it will provide the government with the necessary funds to destroy the people. And it has. how on spot was that? And Jefferson said we must limit the amount of government, the people, the amount of uh, money the government can collect to keep the government within its own boundaries. And how many times has that ever been discussed? And he uh, specifically mentioned, and he re- made this comment in in uh, in relation to. Uh, Patrick Henry's comment about the federal sheriffs and how a a bureaucracy would be built up which would uh, imprison the people, which would impress upon the people their taxes and everything else. And Jefferson said, if we limit the amount of money the federal government can have, we shall prevent that tyranny. But no limitations were placed on the government And they have been able to tax us to imprison us. They use our own money to destroy us, addicted to our own destruction. Any other thoughts, guys? Board's open. Anybody else wants to comment? 
Oh, come on now. Wow, Jim, I thought we would provoke more interest than that. I think we provoked him to sleep or something. I'm not sure. Well, I'm, <laughs> there I'm you go, Murr. Go ahead. Some, yeah, articles about about this. It's, <laughs> it's very stunning. But, uh, of course, after 33 and the bankruptcy, it's all kind of mute anyway, isn't it? <laughs> mm, meaning, uh, elaborate on that, Murr. Well, in 1933, when FDR bankrupted the country, we became enemies of the state. You know, I mean, this limited the state's powers. They were calling them incompetent and everything else. And uh, there was just found another part I was going to post that Alexander Hamilton wanted to go even further, but they didn't quite give him that. But still, it turned it into a monarchy back then. Well, I think, Murr, it was a monarchy from 1787. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Back then, 1787. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, if you remember on June the 18th, Hamilton actually pitched the, con pitched the convention, speaking for six hours, pitched the Constitution on a monarchy. Yeah. And when he, when he finished, the, even the Federalists were stunned, and James Madison says, uh-oh, he let the cat out of the bag. Bingo. <laughs> so that was their what, which means to me that, okay, well, okay, we have to make concessions to George Mason, Elbridge Gary, uh, Luther Martin when he was there, the others. We have to make con some concessions, but when we get to the end, we'll turn it over to a committee of five Federalists and one person who wasn't even picked who decides to join in anyway, who was a staunch Federalist or a monarchist. And they all get together and rewrite the Constitution in three days? Well, that's what it, they want to do again, too, right? If they have a convention. Yes. Trade. Yeah. Yeah, do you well, have yeah, your notes cool. posted anywhere? Uh, I do not, Murr, but I will be happy to send them to you or anyone else who would like them. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Well, Jim, I'm sorry for putting everybody to sleep. Uh, could we talk about NASCAR or maybe Major League Baseball? <laughs> oh, you really want to finish them off, don't you? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, either that or we could talk about what's going on with the Supreme Court or some of the other craziness that's going on these days. How about Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan? Everybody oh, talks about that, and I said, you know, show me in the Constitution where the Speaker of the House is authorized to do anything but lead the House in legislation. Well, she, she isn't, but before we ripped so into what? Syria too, right? Yeah. Well, and don't forget, taxpayer, you're paying for all this. No, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't call oh, me no, no taxpayer. Isn't that about like the Sullivan <laughs> Act? I think that uh, private citizens can't go. I may have my acts mixed up, but I think there's an act out there that says if you're a private citizen, you can't go visit a foreign country to discuss political things or something like that. Maybe I'm confused. Well, she's not a private citizen. No, that's true. She's a head guy Rastakutis in government. Yeah. You got me there. Yeah. Well, you know, guys, here's the thing most people don't understand or do not know is that after each major election, you know, of the new members of the House of Representatives every two years. 
and then when the Senate is elected also during that time frame, that all members who are brand new to the government are given a free all-expenses-paid trip for them, their families, and part of their staff to Israel for 11 days. No other country is allowed to do that. Imagine that. And I would, I would venture to bet that the majority of people are not even aware of that, guys. They don't even know that that's done. And do you think that the country that wines and dines them and gets them there and provides them with all of the niceties and takes them to the wailing wall and does all of this other stuff, do you think for a minute that they might favor in human nature, they might favor that country in legislation? <laughs> Duh. Do you think anybody would get upset if Putin offered the same thing? It is a little strange, Jim, but uh, gosh, yeah. uh, we we put the whole crowd to sleep, sir. I apologize. I don't think. All right, let me, let me give something to nibble on since uh, you're itching for uh, input. Have you been? <clears throat> excuse me, I'm all choked up. Have you been I can tell. the? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, have you been following the um, Brittany Griner episode since you mentioned Putin? Brittany Griner episode over in Russia, the basketball player? Uh, are you asking me, do I watch TV? It, well, it's in the news, though, and you occasionally watch that. Uh, are you asking me, do I read newspapers? <laughs> All right, so, so since, since you may not be aware, Brittany Griner okay. is a WNBA. Tell me about NBA. it. Okay. Brittany Griner is a WNBA player who was caught with a pinch of cannabis in her bag at a Moscow airport back in February, I think. She was promptly arrested, put in jail, charged with possession of drugs or whatever the charge was. She went on trial recently, and I think just today she was found guilty and sentenced to nine years in prison in Russia. I'm pretty sure she's not going to stay there for nine years because the White House and whoever has been broken in exchange for her and some guy named Bout. Yeah, He's a Russian guy Marine. in jail, I think, in Illinois, that they're trying to swap them for. And I'm thinking that's how that deal is going to go down. They're, we're going to give them whoever this Bout guy is in exchange. They're going to let Brittany Griner go instead of putting her in jail for nine years for a pinch of cannabis. Actually, it's more than that. It's Brittany and a former Marine who's over there <laughs> locked up for something. I haven't heard what. They're okay. going to trade some heavy-duty arms dealer that we yeah. have in custody for those two. Yeah. My yeah. personal opinion is they did the crime over there. They're subject to the justice of the country that they followed up in. And we shouldn't be giving up these uh, high-level arms traders for somebody like a uh, somebody that throws a ball through a hoop and some other guy that I don't even know what he did or his claim to fame and the fact that he's a former Marine uh, you break the law in a foreign country, <laughs> you deal with their justice system. Well, oh, Jim, we have, we have federal laws against marijuana in this country. Why should we be getting someone out of the same law in another country? Yeah, and I don't care whether it's legal here. If it's illegal there and you do it there, shame on you. you know, well, you, ignorance yeah, of the law, right? 
<laughs> I, I agree. If they, you know, they obviously knew what it was. I, I think, again, Jim, what we're looking at here is we're playing into emotions mm-hmm. for these people as opposed to intellect. Yeah. And you, you offered the intellectual point of, hey, you knew it was against the law. Why did you do it? Bingo. Okay, you were in a foreign country. It was incumbent upon you to understand what their laws are. So when you went there, so you broke their law, you're subject to their law. And why should it be any concern of anybody in America? Because what if, you know, what if everybody wanted to, if we arrested a foreign, uh, you know, an illegal alien, what if everybody in the world got upset? Oh, they do. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Just imagine if we were illegal aliens. What if, what if these people, instead of going in with passports, what if they snuck into Russia? or Mexico, or some other place, and got caught illegally breaking into that country. You know, if an American breaks into Mexico, guess where he's going to end up? Well, Jim, I knew a guy when I lived in Tucson, Arizona. I knew a guy who went into Mexico, legally, went into Mexico, and when he was coming out, they searched his car, and they found a spent... Nine millimeter casing, not a live round, no weapons, mm-hmm. and he spent over nine months in a Mexican jail for having a spent nine millimeter casing in his car. What? Nobody in uh, the government came to his aid and traded an arms dealer for him? Maybe it's because he wasn't an M- a WNBA player. <laughs> well, very possibly Somebody that so. was known in the public eye. Imagine that. Yeah, you're right. Hey, Jim, uh, have you ever, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of it, uh, since you're mentioning this stuff, uh, I uh, wrote an article many years ago, and uh, the title of my article was The uh, Warmongers Brigade. (laughs) Have uh, you uh, ever heard of that? I think it almost fits in here. Give us a rundown. Robert, are you munching something in the background or something? Sounds like somebody's smacking their lips or something like that. That's me. I, I forgot to mute. Sorry. <laughs> what are you smacking on, That's Robert? That's two demerits. <laughs> you didn't bring laptop. enough for the Sorry whole class. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Did I, hear somebody, did I hear Brent in there somewhere? I'm not sure. Somebody is Rick. Somebody's having problems getting. Rick is unmuted. Murr is unmuted. Speak now or forever mute your piece. <laughs> I'm I'm muted on my computer with a hot key. Uh, okay. Okay. How about All right, Rick? guys? What? I got a question for you. Oh. You got to climb out of the sewer pipe and get closer yeah. to the microphone. Yeah, some, somebody help me! I can't understand a word he's saying. Yeah, you're you're in a pu- tunnel. Okay, he just muted. So apparently, okay, it must be computer All right. issues. All right, I will bring up this 2006 uh, article that I wrote very quickly. If you folks can get a, a thought, give me your thoughts on it. Okay. And I will I will read it as quickly as possible. It appears the Bush administration has a real problem on its hands. The war effort is not going well at all, and the military is on the verge of breaking, according to the media. 
I do believe I have a plan which, if implemented right away, could provide the needed relief Bush is desperately searching for. Desperate times call for desperate measures. If this country is indeed in danger of having to fight the enemy on our soil, it is time to pull out all the stops. If the Bush administration is serious about protecting our freedom, and this is not a war started on lies to increase the bottom line of companies from the military-industrial-congressional complex, it is time to deploy the Warmongers Brigade. 1st Battalion of the Warmongers Brigade would consist of all male and female members of the immediate families of everyone in the Bush administration. Of course, W's daughters would be the first to be placed in this battalion, followed closely by Dick Cheney's uh, daughter, Mary. I am aware that she is pregnant at this time, but without a reasonable but within a reasonable time after giving birth, she could rejoin her battalion in preparation for deployment to the Iraq theater of operations. After all, her significant other is also female, so the infant will not lack for maternal care. This administration has found no problem with sometimes deploying both parents to Iraq, so Mary Cheney being deployed would be business as usual. Included in this battalion would be the children of all of the cabinet members of the administration, led, of course, by any eligible children of Alberto Torture is OK Gonzalez. I'm sure Carl the Leak Rove has some children, nieces or nephews, that would make good cannon fodder. Included in this battalion would be also all eligible employees and family members, 18 to 38 years of age, of the CIA, NSA, DIA, and BATF. Since these agencies have declared war on American civil liberties, extending the declaration to include real enemies should present no problems. So he would not feel left out. All of Donald Rumsfeld's eligible kin would be immediately drafted for service, even though he is no longer with this administration. They, of course, would be required to ride in unarmored Humvees while wearing Vietnam-era flak jackets like did the 173rd Airborne Brigade. 2nd Battalion would consist of all family members of those in Congress who have supported the war in Iraq. Chelsea Clinton would vie for command of this battalion with eligible members of the McCain family. Charles, slavery is okay if you're serving the state. Wrangell could ensure that all members of the Black Caucus have their relatives fitted for new uniforms, trained and ready for deployment. 3rd Battalion would consist of all the male and female members of those at Fox, NBC, CBS, ABC, and the Weekly Standard. Of course, all relatives of Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, and William Crystal, followed closely by relatives of those at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, would receive orders for immediate deployment. All other media outlets in this country that have supported this war would also see their children immediately deployed for immediate service in the global war on terror. 4th Battalion would consist of members from all of the church leaders in this country who have blindly supported the illegal invasion of a country that posed no threat to the, to the United States. Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, James Dobson, and others would, of course, dutifully escort their family members to the induction centers and then volunteer for support duties themselves. No deferments for conscientious objector status would be allowed. Recon Battalion would consist of family members of all the executives of companies in the military-industrial complex who have realized such huge profits from this war. No exemptions would be allowed. If a company is in business to profit from the blood of others, it should also be willing to provide the material, their children, to the effort that produces those profits. 
Special operations elements of the Warmongers Brigade would consist of all members of the NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, and NASCAR, and all other professional and amateur sports teams. If service to this country when we are so at risk is really necessary, as this administration claims, we need combat troops more than we need to be entertained. With their wonderful conditioning and the fact many athletes would rather fight than play the game they are paid to play, combat would be an excellent alternative. Naturally, all members of professional wrestling and boxing would be given command positions in this unit. Staffing the psychological operations unit would be Max Boot, Cal Thomas, Ann Coulter, James Miggs, Andrew Sullivan, George Will, and Charles Krauthammer. No one else could match this group when it comes to turning outrageous lies into palatable truth for the masses. Their lust for war is so strong, they should be required to feel the sting of battle firsthand. Anyone displaying support the troops ribbons would be eligible for immediate induction into the combat support battalion. Their children and grandchildren would be dispersed within the other combat battalions. If our country is in real trouble, supporting the troops should include include providing the troops and who better to do that than those who blindly support war if steps to establish the warmongers brigade as outlined above are not immediately enacted by those in the white house congress and the pentagon your steps to establish the warmongers hmm to find who that is knowing me but apparently they already did okay if steps to establish the warmongers brigade as outlined above are not immediately enacted by those in the White House, Congress, and the Pentagon. They are either the biggest hypocrites on the planet or this war is a hoax. Well, then again, it could be both. So that that was my warmongers brigade. And I just thank you, Murph, for putting that in the chat room, and I just posted it to the Telegram channel <laughs> as well. That's a great one. I'll tell you what. Perfect idea. And that goes, I mean, every single thing that comes along, plug them in. Why shouldn't it be? Exactly. Yeah. We I don't mean, need if, to be. If, that's the one thing that I like about what Washington had to say. <laughs> Do business with them, but don't get entangled with them. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to send that to the board op on Republic Broadcasting, see if they post it. <laughs> oh, good luck with that, Murr. <laughs> she likes being a stick. <laughs> why don't you why don't you try catching a gnat with tweezers? Mm. Karate kid stuff going on here now. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Begin of luck. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well that's Jim, good. I, I like that. I'm, oh thank you. I'm gonna have to come up with subjects that are more interesting. I mean if we only get uh, one uh, get Robert to comment on uh, the uh Committee of Style and Arrangement, uh, I, I must be dropping the ball somewhere. Yeah, I'll tell you what, the fact that Governor Morris was able to do all that he did and not have people saying, hey, what's the matter with you, boy? <laughs> of course, you know, chances are, you know, I don't know if there's any documentation to prove it, but that could have very well been the plan. You know, the group will put together this uh, generic document and then send it to the little guy in the back room who will you know, wave his magic wand over it and his magic quill pen and redo well, Jim, everything. I think the evidence is there uh, if we look at it, because here we had a committee of five people, mm -hmm. the chairman and the other three do nothing. 
and they turn it all over to Gouverneur Marsh to do the whole thing with no input from the rest of the committee. Sounds like a plan to me. It sounds like it was, uh, oh, my God, was it a conspiracy? (laughs) Hey, my first conspiracy. Go ahead, Brent. Oh, good. You can hear me now. I have my external speaker cut on. I got a question. I think I remember you saying that, in your opinion, uh, the true founders of the revolution were the preachers in the communities that informed, you know, they were the, uh, the people that kind of organized everything in the local communities, right? And they had most of the information that was possible to get out there. Uh, yes, sir. But with, with that in mind, was was there any substantial pushback after copies of this new constitution were circulated and all? Uh, only from the anti-federalists. And there were a multitude of anti-federalists. The thing I try to tell folks is that, and I can prove it with documents, is that the Anti-Federalists represented every segment of society. There were some people who wrote as Anti-Federalists that you can look at their writings and you can, they couldn't spell. They obviously were not educated, but they were very much against the Constitution. And it goes all the way through every level of society in 1788, all the way up to uh, some in the wealthy aristocracy who were uh, Anti-Federalists. So there was great pushback from the anti-federalists. The problem was is that no one in a position of authority, except for Patrick Henry in his uh, work in the Virginia Ratification Convention, and by that time, by the time, and I believe that Virginia would not have ratified the Constitution had it not been, had the ninth state, New Hampshire, not ratified during the middle of their convention. And it was brought up continuously by John Marshall and uh, James Madison. Hey, the Constitution already is in effect, people. It's already there. Nine states have approved it. Why would we want to stand outside of that group? And Madison then went about promising everybody he could talk to at the Virginia Ratification Convention that, hey, just ratify this thing and I'll promise you a Bill of Rights. He didn't say what would be in it, but he promised him a Bill of Rights. So, and uh, going back to your original uh, point, I wrote an article on that very subject, and it called, and it was called uh, several years ago, might be a decade or more now, called The Black Regiment is Missing. Right. I'm sure Merck can find that. And that was like a 50-year period from 1720 to 1770, roughly, known as the Great Awakening, if I'm not mistaken. Right, and, and Jim, like crazy. one of the things I got into in uh, my uh, research for uh, Whistling Dixie, and not the uh, version that I'll send to you later today, mm-hmm. but in another version, and I was just, there were times, Jim, when I was sat, sat looking at these documents, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm not really an emotional guy, but I was almost in tears that after the Battle of Fredericksburg, in uh, Virginia in the December of 1862. The Confederate Army went into uh, basically winter survival mm-hmm. at a place called Moss Neck, Virginia. And these Confederate soldiers, Jim, built, cut down trees and built churches for worship. This was one of the... and. Uh, 
Thomas Stonewall Jackson was hiring ministers to come preach to thousands of Confederate soldiers. And so from January, February, March, and then into mid-April, this was called the Great Awakening in the Confederacy. So many men in the Confederate Army were converted to Christianity, those who weren't. Uh, and they were, uh, again, they were cutting down trees and building churches for their own regiments. And the outpouring during that period of time is just, uh, you know, as I was reading through what they did, and, uh, you know, I will do a Whistling Dixie on that at some point, but what happened at Moss Neck, Virginia, wow. during that time frame, and the great religious awakening, and as I said, Jeff, uh, Johnson, uh, Jackson uh, was paying, uh, Thomas John, uh, Stonewall Jackson was paying ministers $300, which was one heck of a lot of oh, money. Yeah. Back then, uh -huh. he was paying ministers in the South in several states, including Georgia and others, to travel to that part of Virginia and preach to these soldiers. Man. And, Jim, we're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 60,000 soldiers. And somehow or another, now, that hasn't made it into any of the history books. I just can't figure that out. Oh, I, you know, it's probably just a simple omission, Jim. I'm sure that no one meant that. But at the same time, we had the commander of the opposing army was named Fighting Joe Hooker. <laughs> what what name did he leave to history? Hooker's Brigade. <laughs> no, he left the name Hooker. Hooker. Prostitute. Well, because he was bringing in wagon loads of women for the Union Army. Is that where that term came from? That's where the term came from, hookers. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I thought he was a golfer. Uh, there's yeah, a story yeah, I'm going to yeah, use yeah. in church one of these yeah, days. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Man. So, so while, hooker was, while hooker was providing hookers, Jackson was providing ministers to his forces. Mm. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Man. Yeah, so I'm probably going to do a, uh, I'm trying to put the stuff together, Jim. I'm probably going to do a complete Whistling Dixie on that period of oh, history that no one is even aware of. And, you know, and then again, you know, I, I'm a Dumbo, so I had to go research this. I read about it. I had to go research it and find documentation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was able to find just that, especially in letters from Jackson to his wife. And Jackson, uh, as most people probably don't know, his first wife died in childbirth. And it was a huge, uh, he lost both a child and his wife. And it, it w affected him for years after that. And then he finally marries Anna. And Anna has a newborn child which is, you know, just a few months old, which she brings to the revival in Moss Neck, which is just, does, affects Jackson in so many ways. His men talked about him. And the study of Stonewall Jackson is just one of the most wonderful studies I've ever embarked on because you want to talk about an eccentric guy, but a military genius, just absolutely a military genius. It's, it's unreal. Well, he was orphaned at a young age, too, right? 
Yes, uh, he and his sister. Well, for for somebody and, that uh, starts out course, that way in life to to develop and and go the way he did is very, you know, that's much more a miracle. Yeah, and he and his uh, sister had serious, uh, very serious falling out over the war because she was a resident of what became West Virginia, and she was Unionist in nature, and he, of course, was not. And uh, so what a complex individual he was. And, you know, and one of the things I like about the movie, for those of you who haven't seen it, and I'm not much of a movie goer, but... Uh, Gods and Generals is very mm -hmm. historically correct. Yeah. And I it watch is, that every once you know, in it's, while. it's a little long, yeah. but that story, that story of Jackson losing it over that young girl dying is absolutely documented. And it was documented by his surgeon, Hunter McGuire. And the fact that the men had never seen Jackson cry. until that little girl died. And of course, I'm sure that at that time, the reflection on Jackson was of his own wife and daughter that had died in child, that had uh, died in childbirth. And I'm sure that really affected him. But he spent more time with that young girl at Moss Neck, playing little games with her, doing things with her than he spent with his own men at that time. And a lot of people were uh, in his army wrote about the humanity of Jackson they had never seen before. Wow. Amazing, amazing man. So the Confederacy had two leading men, Robert E. Lee and Thomas Stonewall Jackson, who were very, very, very religious, very, very strong Christians. And the North had Ulysses S. Grant, who was a drunk and... Uh, Sherman, who was, uh, they had gotten out of a mental institution. Quite the comparison. Yeah. Psycho. Did Grant drink religiously? Uh, that he did. <laughs> that he did. And, and let's, let's, not, let's not forget that uh, when uh, Abraham Lincoln was uh, advised that Grant was an alcoholic, Grant's, I mean, Lincoln's response was, we'll find out what he's drinking and let's send it to the rest of the generals. Mm -hmm. Tells you where his mind is, too. Yeah, and let's not forget that uh, Ulysses Grant owned slaves and kept slaves up until the 13th Amendment. <laughs> Imagine that. Oh, how many people, Jim, knew that Abraham Lincoln owned slaves? Ooh. I did. No, just kidding. Just recently. Yeah, for a very short period of time, he actually owned slaves, and but he got them from Mary Todd's father's will. Mm. Yep. And guess what? He quickly sold them. <laughs> oh, didn't grant he, them their freedom. No, Let's he didn't give, didn't give them freedom, but he sold them. Don't want to be known as a slave owner, but I can make a little money off of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good grief. Well, what kind of freedom would he have sent them into then? <laughs> well, at that point, did it matter as long as you said they were free? That's right. That's what he did with the Emancipation Proclamation, except he only freed the slaves where he had no control. Bingo. No <laughs> That's like saying, okay, uh, here's a new law for Canada. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lincoln was a He's, terrible racist too, right? Oh, I mean, his uh, his comments in the 1858 Lincoln-Douglas debates. Oh, which makes me think of something. How many of you people know that the 1860 election was fraudulent? Every saying that he was only he wasn't on on the ballot in what ten southern states. Well, it's even better than things. that, Jim. Did you know that over six hundred thousand illegal immigrants voted for Lincoln? Oh, so the so-called Republicans did it too, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Republicans <laughs> did it in eighteen sixty, and guess what? They guess what the requirement was for an illegal alien to vote in five northern states. Fogamir? No, they had to write a declaration that at some point they would become a citizen. Well. <laughs> History repeats. Uh, man. Over and over and over again. There's no other thing the coach didn't teach us. <laughs> Darn the coach anyway. <laughs> man. If I ever see that dude again, I'm going to tell him how he dropped the ball. <laughs> Literally. Well, but he really didn't care. <laughs> and he didn't know either. He's ignorant no, he just like know. everybody else. Yeah, and he was uh, going by what he had been taught, just like the rest of us. Mm hmm. Bubis Americanus. Mm hmm. And. Oh, well, Jim, goodness gracious, we've got 30 minutes left to go and no comments. Uh, well, let's see here. I did see one thing that I had no clue because I haven't been following this much either, but that Brittany, whoever it is, turns out to be a, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, switch hitter? X, X on the passport. <laughs> Transgender. Uh, yeah, he, she. So that's, that's not trans, Brittany Bryan. Not transgender, just as a wife. Just a dude. Uh, let's tell, you know, say it the way it is. It's a dude. Just like all these other ones, um, yeah, you know. But the first dude, we have uh, old Big Mike Obama. <laughs> so I guess if he can do it, why not everybody else? Yeah. How's come you don't see? There's plenty of women that have that claim they're men. Why aren't they taking over the men's sports? Well, probably because whether no matter what you claim to be, the the physical man is going to be stronger than the physical woman. Although, if you remember back in the seventies when we had Billie Jean King and what's his chops, um, <laughs> the tennis match. If I remember yeah. right, she whooped him. <laughs> yeah, John yeah, what's his Riggs. Yeah, Riggs. Bobby Riggs. Bobby Riggs. Bobby Riggs. He got whooped like a yard dog, didn't he? Yeah. I was being sure. a little sarcastic there, yeah. Sarge. Yeah, but, well, you know. Sarcasm I, is allowed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of our listeners, uh, regular people, got kind of upset with my sarcasm the other day when I mentioned sending the uh, illegal aliens to Washington, D.C. and New York. And I don't recall mentioning L.A. but or California, but she seemed to think I was and went ballistic in an email. <laughs> so, anyway. But be that it be, as it may. Um, well, Jim, hey, I have something to add. What's that? Oh, go ahead, please. Uh, on Grant, when uh, he was asked about not freeing his slaves, didn't he say good help's hard to find? <laughs> I've heard that 
Brent, but I can't document it. I can't find that documented anywhere. But he yeah. also he is also reported to have said, if this war is about slavery, I would give my sword to the other side. Hmm. Interesting. And we do know that after, you know, everyone says that, oh, well, the North was this great bastion. Uh, people, have you ever heard about the draft riots in New York in 1863? Yeah. Excellent uh, point. Robert, do you, do you know how many innocent black men who happened to be walking the streets of New York were murdered by the outlandish people? Bands who were uh, saying this, we're not going to war over blacks. They didn't use, they used a more uh, descriptive term. Sure. But they said, we're not going to war for these people. And they hanged innocent people. Yeah. And and didn't they blow or set fire to a building too? Oh, yes. Lots of buildings. They set fire to lots of buildings. Okay. Does, Does anyone historically know? What Lincoln did to put down that draft riot? I have no idea. Mm-mm. He sent in a full army, part of an army, right after Gettysburg. He sent in part of a Union army in to forcibly put down that draft riot, and all soldiers who were killed during that draft riot were listed as being killed at Gettysburg. I guess uh, posse comitatus had no meaning back then either. Nope. Well, that's a point I would like to make, Jim, and, and this and I make it in tomorrow's program. And I don't want to give the whole thing away. But anyway. <laughs> Previews of coming attractions. <laughs> yeah, pre- preview of coming attractions. Here is the point. When Washington formed an army a 13,000-man army with Alexander Hamilton and unconstitutionally marched into Pennsylvania to put down the Whiskey Rebellion. When they arrested people and Hamilton wanted them all hanged, but Washington commuted their sentences. What is the difference in that and Lincoln sending an army into the South to collect a tax and to punish those who would did not want to pay that tax what's the difference not much tyranny's tyranny no matter how you slice it well as a matter of fact when questioned about his constitutional authority to send troops into the south without congressional approval lincoln used washington's foray into Pennsylvania as justification for his movement. He said, if Washington can do it, I can do it. That's now, those people... Justification. <laughs> yeah, those, those people were tax resistors. What's the difference between the people... Do you think that the people who were fighting against the whiskey tax in Pennsylvania... Do you think that they were any less patriotic than were the Southerners who defended themselves against the attack of the federal government? Hmm. Got me. 
anybody else? Hey, Mike. Mike. Hey, Jim. Hey, DW. And I was wondering if you well, had fallen asleep there, Daryl. Yeah, but I, I I got in late, but uh, it's uh, it's fascinating. So the, the the history, this is just fascinating history here. Uh, this is why we have to have you, Mike. <laughs> yep. Uh, so so the history that, that's been hidden about pre-Civil War and Civil War as relates to the North is because it would change the context of people's understanding is is that the same reason why you're not taught about the anti-federalists and the context of history uh during the constitution you know there's a pattern here where i'm seeing a pattern and uh, uh i i've been trying to explain to people that the civil war was the bolshevik revolution before the Bolshevik Revolution, and uh, uh, some of the people I'm talking to are kind of getting it. It's like, well, th this is when this is when social communism was brought to this country, and uh, I, I think it's really that big, isn't it, Mike? That this oh, is yes. actually a Bolshevik. This is Bolshevism before Bolshevism. Well, look uh, at the who founded the Republican Party in Ripon, uh, Wisconsin, D.W. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, our friend Cal, he brought he brought to my attention uh, a guy by the name of Joseph Wiedemeyer. Mm. And I, I was just dumbfounded that I didn't know about Joseph Wiedemeyer and his connections with Horace Greeley, Karl Marx. Uh, Engels uh, and Abraham Lincoln. I was just, I was just dumbfounded. I said, "Well, how how can you not see this? You know, if if you know the history, but of course you're not told the history, are you? You're not told this." No, well, yeah. and D.W. I Except, would like to make yeah. a, well, I'd like to make a book recommendation to you, but I'm going to tell you up front, the book is not cheap. But there is a really good book out there, and it's called. To the victors go the myths and the monuments. Yeah. Well, and within you, that, you talk about within, that before. And within that book, there is documentation about the 600,000 illegal voters that voted for Lincoln. And it stipulates, and he provides the evidence that if those 600,000 socialist Germans had not voted for Lincoln, Stephen A. Douglas would have been elected president. So, as Jim so adroitly yeah. said, the Republicans were involved in their own illegal election. Do you three have any plans yet to do your show together, Mike, Daryl, and Cal? Who's not here, but... We do. Are you going to share? <laughs> yeah, it's coming first of next month. Cool. Is that going to be a podcast uh, platform? No. Oh, cool. That should be interesting. Um, yeah, yeah paperback, as, as 45, 25 says, for that book. As Ron Popeil says, 
Uh, more to come. <laughs> yeah. More, more to come. <laughs> how how much was the book, Jim? You can't remember back is forty five twenty five. Hardcover two seventeen seventy eight. Fourteen fourteen ninety five for Kindle. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the kitchen well, magician. What's what's the title? To the it's victor, the title the again, myths Mike. and the, the monuments. To, to, to the to victors, victors go the myths, the myths and the monuments. monuments. History of the first okay. hundred years of the war against God and the Constitution, 1776 Jim, to 1876. Murr has a link in the chat. Yep. He brings up such a valid point in there about a gentleman that was an advisor to Abraham Lincoln who then, after the war, left, went back to Germany, became a member of their government, and wrote that the American country would survive very well if they would just get rid of that odd notion of Christianity. Good heavens. Yeah, Kingdom of Prussia. You know, there's a Kingdom of Prussia in uh, near Philly. <laughs> Oh yeah. oh yeah. Forgot about that, Murr. Thanks. You are the you are the thing, Murr. Yeah, it's called King of Prussia. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a big yeah, mall King, over there. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's uh what's really interesting is Mike and I uh I don't know, it was about a year and a half ago, Mike, we had uh, Chris Fogarty on who wrote uh the Irish Holocaust and the whole uh, yeah and who yeah yeah and uh mike and i interviewed him or actually just turned him loose and he ran hard for two hours and uh he wrote show. a great book with all the source material and documentation in it and interestingly you know this uh this irish holocaust and the exodus of the irish from the isle of ireland uh, uh in the 1840s and the 1850s laid a a great foundation for a future people to be drafted wasn't it mm -hmm. yes I, I i suppose that's just a fringe benefit of uh of uh, you know uh expropriating people's land and their food and and forcing them off their land so that they can go fight another war that's being planned for uh, that's that's Absolutely. just how conspiratorial I am. <laughs> well, go have another drink, DW. <laughs> I know the pain. I know it's it's. Uh, I, I was listening. I was listening to you talk earlier, and you said, "Well, you know, am I a conspiracy theorist?" My question is: is so then my question to people that say that we're conspiracy theorists? Uh, my response back to them is. So you're saying that collusion is an illusion. All right. <laughs> well, you know what my you know what my comment you know what my comment about uh, uh, conspiracy theories is, right? If there are no if there are no conspiracy theories, then forty percent of the prisoners in the federal penitentiary need to be released tomorrow because they're in prison for conspiracy to commit a crime. That's 40% of the prison, federal prison population is there for conspiracy to commit a crime. And also, if there are no conspiracies, then Julius Caesar was killed in a random walk by knifing. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Yes, Judas. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Uh, <laughs> Brutus. Brutus. That would be Brutus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Me too, Brutus. You know, uh, isn't it funny, though? Isn't it? Isn't it interesting, though? You know, what a coincidence that uh, the people that coined the phrase conspiracy theorists are the conspirators. Isn't oh, that, the any, anybody else find that? Always accuse <laughs> the others of what you're doing yourself. The CIA, the Christians yeah. in the Yep. Well, you know, Jim, I, I, I'm, I, I'm going to be walking on the borderline here, so you, I know you know, I know. <laughs> I don't my even know who had you are. A, my my grandpa had a saying for this that I have to. Well, I, I'm I'm going to share and, and beg your indulgence for a moment. My grandpa would say, "Well, you do know, Daryl, that a skunk always smells his own ass first. And, <laughs> and 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 of course, that's in the Bible. The word ass is in the Bible. So of course, uh, but uh, yeah, I got uh, expelled from high school. You know, they for do. That. You bet your ass. <laughs> No, I got expelled from uh, high school for five days because during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I walked into chemistry class and I said, which was also a coach, and I said, hey, coach, did you hear they stopped another ship? And he said, oh, I don't know. Um, What are you talking about? And well, well, maybe I better not tell that one. I'll back up. Go ahead, DW. <laughs> <laughs> you gonna you gonna save that one for your own show, huh? Yeah, I'm gonna uh, save that one for later. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Oh, we're getting uh, well, we're I'm, digressing. <laughs> but that's I'm, the I'm fun sorry. part. We're devolving. <laughs> uh, yeah. Somebody somebody once said. Uh, uh, made a quote to Mike. He said, uh, "Listening to Mike and Cal and Daryl is like uh, sitting in and watching three old friends play poker with history chips." Mm. <laughs> Good one, history chips. Ooh, and and uh, I, I think somewhere, Mike, we have to work that into part of the uh, part of the promo on on one of your shows. So. Yeah, I, I call your too bad. Norman I call your Rockwell conventional history and, and raise you with some it. source documents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I call you and raise you two source documents. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. So, well, I didn't realize. Yeah, I, it, I didn't realize yeah, yet ahead, until man. yesterday. Until yesterday, DW. I didn't realize until uh, old Andrew Carrington Hitchcock made the statement that he made. I had never really thought of it. And again, I don't want to, this to sound like I'm patting myself on the back because this is not my intent. But yesterday, Andrew Carrington Hitchcock says, you know, Mike, you are the only person out there who is bringing forth this knowledge. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. I really hadn't thought of it until he said that. I've never heard anybody else's even come close. Yeah. 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 You know, uh, by the way, if, if, uh, Mike hadn't already said it, uh, I think we're going to be, uh, on, uh, Eurofolk tomorrow on that interview. Aren't we, Mike? Isn't it, doesn't it play? I think it plays tomorrow, doesn't it? I think our buddy, Andrew Carrington Hitchcock is even calling it addicted to our own destruction. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, the name is being being brought forth again. <clears throat> so uh, I, I think that'll probably play right before uh, Roger's show or somewhere or in the afternoon. He plays it in it plays in the this afternoon or after this after show mine, tomorrow. If I remember I right. Yeah, that conversation. Yeah, I can't I can't say enough about uh, Andrew Carrington Hitchcock. Uh, I really. He's really uh, he's the real deal uh, distinguished himself. Yeah, he's he's really he's own his own man. He's very he's distinguished himself as uh, somebody of integrity and character. I just really uh, just want to make that publicly stated. So. Yeah. And therefore, anyway. folks, any support that could be given to Andrew Carrington Hitchcock. I, you know, listening, whatever you can do to help him out. He does one heck of a job. And uh, I'm just echoing what he, uh, he's said here. Yeah, a Andrew uh, Andrew wrote a uh, an amazingly detailed timeline book uh, called The Synagogue of Satan. Uh, I, th Ooh, I think yes. it's eight or, eight or ten years old now. And... Uh, it's it's written in a, a linear chronological timeline, which is really nice to follow along with when you're uh, you're looking for information. So, uh, I, that's that's a great way to support him. Yeah, the yeah. revised and updated version is available at Money Tree Publishing. Is it available anywhere else? Thanks, I'm not Mer. supporting them. Nope. Darn the luck. Maybe I can see if I can get it from Andy directly. I shall see yeah. what I can do. I can send you a PDF of the yeah, old the... version, Mike. Hey, would you please? Yes, the older version of his original. Now it's not the updated. I could well, send I you my copy. <laughs> well, it, either one. I will take either one i guys you guys are uh, just absolutely fantastic i i might even have to tell you why i got kicked out of high school here in a minute uh you can you can also if the site is still up you can get that plus gobs of other stuff protocols and uh gary allen and uh it's uh it's uh bible believers org au if it's still up australian site Oh, fantastic. Mer, can you put that in the show notes, please? Sure. Thank you, man. It may be down, but yes, it's sir. got, God, that's the most comprehensive site I've ever seen for, like, you know, conspiracy stuff and all that kind of stuff. Wide variety of subjects. Well, there are no conspiracies. You know, we have to admit that. The government told us there are no conspiracies. So let's let's just get in line here. Don't anybody be trying to push the envelope. No, I I know that's you know there 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 can't be any conspiracies and that's why counterintuitively, counterintelligently, <laughs> the the government uh, legislated the RICO laws for a conspiracy because there are none. Yes, uh, don't you see? It makes all why, makes all perfect sense now. Since yeah, that's there that's are why, no conspiracies. We're gonna make. <laughs> Yeah, that's why uh, forty percent of people are in federal prison because there are no conspiracies. Where do you get that figure? 
uh, by actually going to the Department of Prisons records. Get out. And they're only theories because the government seals their documents for 70 years or so. Yeah. Absolutely. There's this little thing called, there's this little thing that people learn about uh, when they get, they get crosswise with government commerce and it's called parallel construction. <laughs> they can, they can create a conspiracy when, when none didn't exist and then get you to plea bargain uh, through f fear, coercion, and intimidation. Yeah. So that's, uh, they do that, that that, that's a conspiracy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, attorney generals are, that's, that, that's their business is to be in conspiracy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, how, <clears throat> uh, you know, I, I do, I would say, and I, I have to tell you, I've, I've done it a lot myself um, when I'm digging out, trying to dig out old books and, and information and different things. And I'll go, I'll go to archives and the Wayback Machine and I'll find PDFs of stuff that I can download. Uh, sometimes you just can't find the book. But for people who are alive and actually you can show your appreciation and support them. I, I highly recommend going directly to them, you know, and, and to actually purchase the physical copy of the book because see they they get that they get that benefit of the of you oh, actually absolutely. doing that. And, I agree with that, and, DW. And uh, yeah, uh, and and you know, you can't do it for Bill Cooper anymore because see they the government said he was a conspirator when there are none, and they. Uh, they sent a, a sheriff hit team out to murder him. So he, you can't, <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't buy, buy from him live well, anymore. And, or, or Alan Watt. Uh, well, uh, I, DW. I'm, off, I, I'm sorry, Jim. Yes, sir. Well, let, let me uh, give for the folks here. CIA document one zero three five dash nine or six zero. Conspiracy theory is a term that strikes fear and anxiety in the hearts of most every public figure, particularly journalists and academics. Since the 1960s, the label has become a disciplinary device that has been overwhelmingly effective in defining certain events as off-limits to inquiry or debate. Especially in the United States, raising legitimate questions about dubious official narratives destined to inform public opinion and thereby public policy is a major thought crime that must be cauterized from the public psyche at all cost, unquote. Cauterized. It's an official, it's that an official, like yeah, it's an official CIA document, people. They invented the term conspiracy theory to demonize, just as I just read to you, from their official document. Murr, do you have that document? I just put it in chat. Oh, okay, good. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, pretty freaky. I wonder if we can download this. Hmm. Yeah, it's an old one, that's for sure. Right, it's on a, a viewer. I can do free screenshots of it. 
Yeah, it's kind of a sanitized. They've sanitized it since then, Jim. Well, this one, the only thing that seems to be redacted is looks like maybe signatures or something. But right. Uh, this is actually it's from archive.org. Good. So I'm gonna see if I can make it bigger and do screenshots of it. Hmm. See what we can do here. Sounds like a plan, buddy. Sounds like a plan. Yep. Make a PDF of it. That would be fantastic. That would be great for people to look at. Yeah, it's only five pages long. Rather short for <laughs> a CIA document. <laughs> do, do, do. Almost. We almost. need to. We need to start mocking these people because they can't stand that. You know, they take away all the pol political cartoons. Like what Daryl was just saying, the allusion to collusion or collusion yeah. illusion or whatever. You know, every time they bring up one of theirs, have, have a snappy comeback. Make people laugh. Well, the first thing we have to do is wake up well, people yeah. so they can laugh. Some, sometimes <laughs> laughter wakes yeah. them up. Okay. You have a point, Murr. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Well, gosh, Jim, very yeah. little comment. Very little comment today, buddy. Am I yeah. losing it? It's. I don't know what's going on. I think everybody's just tired. You know, I've already. I'd already done two hours of radio and an hour on the phones before I came to this show. So We're just, slow on the wrong days, huh, Sarge? What's that? Yeah. We're slow on the wrong days. Yeah, what can I say? You know. <laughs> hey, you know, even better, things like uh, no king but King Jesus. Amen. That really blows them away. Or that their, yep. their, their time thing where they changed B.C. and A.D. to B.C.E. and C.E. Well, mm -hmm. guess what? Holy Spirit told me that that means Christ eternal. So they can have that. There you go. Works like a charm. Oh, there it is. Download a PDF. And I'm sitting here taking pictures of it. And I've got the actual... Just had to scroll a little further. Got the whole thing here. I will... Uh, I can't put PDF in the chat, but the link to the thing is there. So you can get it that way. And Mike, I will um, drop it in your chat on Skype. Oh, thank you, buddy. Uh, I was going to ask you a question, Jim, on my program for tomorrow on Whistling Dixie. Mm -hmm. uh, could you throw in that ad from uh, uh, the uh, Confederate folks up in South Carolina? Yeah, I can do that, I think. Um, if, if I you... leave space for it? Yeah, definitely. Okay, I'll do that. Because those people are fighting the fight, and I want to help them out as much as possible. Do you want me to put it at the beginning, at the end, or I could actually put a little thing in the middle? Well, you better not put it at the beginning, because that's where I've got Dixie on cello. Ooh, well, we won't do that then. <laughs> so I'll leave space at the end for okay. that, okay, buddy? Okay, sounds like a plan. And, we'll get her and done. hey, so for everybody to hear, I didn't... I don't have enough time. I didn't do it on the production for tomorrow. But, folks, I want to do it in his presence. I want to be so thankful that Jim Ram has a, allowed me this position, this time out of his programming to put forth Whistling Dixie, something that is so very, very important to me. 
And for that, I owe you, buddy. Well, if it's important to you, it's important to me. I, that information is just stuff that needs to get out. And I was just doing replays of shows that were aired all you know during the week anyway. So I would rather have new information out there for people to get. And this is history that is just not heard. Uh, obviously, the coach didn't know it. And neither is anybody else. So I want to make sure that as many people can hear it as possible. And it will be posted everywhere I put uh, all the replay links and everything else as well on my Facebook pages and Telegram plus uh, uh, CastBox, the whole shoot and match. So everybody, it'll go everywhere that I put everything. And it's my, my pleasure to do so. Appreciate that so much. And, hey, DW, thank you for joining in here today. I don't care yeah. what oh, I don't care what Tracy says about you. I think you're okay. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank what, you for that. What's your dog's I, name, uh, Molly? I just, uh, I just, oh, I just, uh, I just love what dog's uh, name Maggie. What, what you're all doing? That's right, Maggie. Yeah, yeah. she was saying some things Maggie. too. I can't repeat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maggie, Maggie. <laughs> Mike and I both have a dog named Maggie. Gotta so love it. we. Uh, <laughs> We didn't plan that either. We both we both have dogs named Maggie, but uh, no. you know this information, Jim. Like you were saying, it's uh, people people realize that this is actually providing you with with intellectual weaponry to attack the enemy. Exactly, it's, it's really an education where you can you can you can not only can you defend yourself, like Murr was saying, uh, uh, you can go on the attack and do it with a smile. And you can do it with the facts. You can actually go on attack, which will give you your dignity back. And you don't have to cast your eyes down. You can hold your shoulders up and and attack with a smile on your face. Yeah, and you can start with and a smile and say, this is something that a yeah. coach didn't teach you. <laughs> right. There's yeah. a reason. Yeah, he, he, oh. Well, from ahead, the Marine Corps bro. rifle range, yeah. you don't want to shoot Maggie's drawers. <laughs> Yeah, boy, that's for sure. Maggie's drawers is not a good sign, Brent. Mm-mm-mm. Hey, good to hear your voice there, Brent. Yeah, good to hear yours, too. Uh, I wanted to bring up, as I did at the end of Roger's show, um, let's yeah. remember the passing a year ago of our friend Chris Cave. Definitely. Oh, gosh. Definitely. I love that guy. That guy was just special. He was such a special man. I tell you what, I I really missed being able to talk with Chris. Chris was, he's one of us. And thank you, Brent, for bringing that up. And uh, uh, damn me for not remembering it uh, yeah. to bring it up myself. And I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up. You know, it, I hadn't been on, we hadn't been on this network that long, but I, I got to know Chris and he actually called into my show a few times and I considered every time he did a, a great honor to have him gracing us with, uh, with his intelligence and, and words, uh, smithing and everything else that he was so good at. Just a wonderful guy. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And, uh, again, Brent, I can't say it enough. Thank you for bringing up chris yeah because again he's a very very special man and a very very special memory definitely and uh perfect timing too because uh, that brought us right up to the end of the show we're pretty much out of time thanks so much mike for being here and for dw and everybody else who joined us um and tomorrow 
all things, if everything works out electronically and all that good stuff, we will have Whistling Dixie during this time frame. And uh, we'll continue to do that every Friday that we can. So uh, be here for that one. It'll be on, it won't be on uh, Jitsi, however. You'll have to listen to it live on Eurofolk Radio. That's the only downside. But it will be here. So thanks so much, everybody. Have a wonderful weekend. Take care of your bodies because it's the only place you have to live. Only place you have to live. And we'll see you Monday. Take care and God bless. Thanks, guys. God bless everyone. Right back. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're served. Bye.